This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This is going to be one of those shows where we just try and catch up on materials, and to do so, we may have to forsake having some guests on, although you never know, Donald Trump might call, as of course he did on last week's program. I must say I was pleasantly surprised when I went to go uh, pull up Trump on our archives to discover that, well, you know, actually the Donald called back in 2007. That, too, was a memorable conversation. And we'd recommend that if you'd like to learn more about the frontrunner for the GOP's nomination for president, you might want to go check out uh, both of those appearances by going to our archives at radioparallax.com. We like to start our programs with On This Date in History, and today was a rather momentous day in history. Our date is August 6th, and it's not necessarily on August 6th in 1762 we're talking about, because that was the day that the sandwich was allegedly invented, as the inveterate gambler, the Earl of Sandwich, called for a piece of beef between two slices of bread so that he could continue to eat without leaving the card table. At least, that's the story. You got to know when to hold up, know when to fold up. You know, if we have time, we may have to read from Woody Allen's A Brief History of the Earl of Sandwich. Maybe in our third segment. All right, August 6, 1932, here in the United States... A man named Richard Hollingshead Jr. registered a patent for the drive-in movie theater. In 1950, the patent was declared invalid, however, and as a result, thousands of drive-ins suddenly appeared on the American landscape. You'd think that it would have been able to have just paid the guy for the patent, but I don't know. Kind of stuck between business weasels and lawyers. But the sad thing that happened on August 6th happened 70 years ago today. At 8.15 a.m., the U.S. Army Air Corps Super Fortress bomber, the Enola Gay, dropped one bomb, an atomic bomb. It was codenamed Little Boy, on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. 70,000 people were killed almost instantly, and many more would die from the aftereffects of the world's first nuclear bombing. The atomic bomb had been developed in the U.S., prompted by fears that Hitler was working on such a device. Although by August of 1945, Hitler was dead, the war in Europe was over, and thus you would think the need for the atomic bomb was much reduced. But, as it would turn out, U.S. military forces built one, and they were determined to test one. In fact, two. The Hiroshima bomb was composed of uranium. In fact, it represented most of the uranium that the U.S. had developed throughout the war in the Manhattan Project. Scientists were certain that the uranium bomb would work, and it did. They didn't even bother to test the thing. Although it is curious to note that only 1% of the uranium actually fissioned in the bomb. Most of it got blasted all over the place in the explosion. The story of the first atomic bombing 70 years ago today is so important that we need to devote a few minutes to it at the top of the show. We hope you caught that PBS special, which aired last week, titled The Bomb. It told the story of uh, the 70th anniversary of atomic weapons, and it told it very well over two hours. We'll try and put a link to that special on our website. Author Richard Rhodes was prominently featured on it. His books on the making of the atomic bomb are well worth your time to read. But I learned something in this special which surprised me. How Leo Zillard and others working at Los Alamos tried to stop the atomic bombing 
of Japan. You've heard of Leo Szilard, even if the name isn't ringing a bell, because you've no doubt heard that it was a letter from Albert Einstein to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt that convinced him that such an atomic weapon would be possible and that the U.S. should try and build one. Because the letter was from Albert Einstein, FDR paid attention to it. But actually, it was Leo Szilard who went to Einstein and convinced him to write the letter. Szilard was a Hungarian Jew. He was born in 1898 and became a German citizen in the early 30s, at which time Adolf Hitler came to power and Szilard thought it would be a good time to leave Germany. He was something of a wizard in physics and, as the story goes, annoyed by comments by Ernest Rutherford, rejecting the feasibility of using atomic energy for any practical purpose, Szilard thought it through and came up with the idea of a nuclear chain reaction, analogous to a chemical chain reaction. You might think of a chemical chain reaction as taking a match to a bunch of wood in your fireplace. Szilard thought that if you took the neutrons, which come out of atomic nuclei, during certain reactions, you might be able to channel them into a self-sustaining reaction. He did not have the idea of nuclear fission in mind at the time because that had not yet been discovered. He nevertheless filed a patent on the concept of the neutron-induced nuclear chain reaction. And in the 1930s, Szilard worked on bombarding certain elements with neutrons and uh, in doing so produced heavier elements that in some cases were radioactive. This phenomenon was known as the Fermi effect after its discoverer, the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi. In November of 1938, when Szilard was living in New York City, the word reached America through Niels Bohr that in Germany, Otto Hahn and Fritz Straussmann had discovered nuclear fission. When Szilard found out about it, he immediately realized that uranium might be the element capable of sustaining a nuclear chain reaction. Szilard was unable to convince the great Enrico Fermi that this was the case, so he set out on his own. With collaborator Walter Zinn, he used a radium-beryllium source to bombard uranium with neutrons and discovered the natural uranium produced a multiplication of the neutrons. This proved that a chain reaction might be possible. Szilard got together with Enrico Fermi and soon began making great progress in the splitting of the atom. Seeing the potential for an atomic bomb in all this, Szilard then went to Albert Einstein and with the help of his fellow physicists and friends Eugene Wigner and Edward Teller, convinced Einstein to sign the letter that he wrote, suggesting that they develop a crash program to make an atomic bomb. This is, of course, the Manhattan Project and it succeeded. It's said that one of Szilard's greatest contributions to the work on the atomic bomb was the fact that he and Fermi created the first controlled nuclear chain reaction at the University of Chicago in 1942. It's said that were it not for his genius, Szilard would have been fired from the Manhattan Project, for he was outspoken in his criticism of how the project was run. In fact, Leslie Groves, the general who was overseeing the project, wanted to have Szilard interned for the duration of the war as an enemy alien. When the war in Europe ended, Leo Szilard tried to stop the use of the atomic weapons against Japan. 
Using another letter from Albert Einstein, Szilard scheduled a meeting with Eleanor Roosevelt for May 8th. He planned to give her information that would caution the president about the dangers of a nuclear arms race if the A-bomb was used before an international control agreement could be discussed with the Soviets. Unfortunately, on April 12th, FDR died. An attempt to meet with President Truman led instead to a May 28th meeting with James Burns, the Secretary of State-to-be. Burns thoroughly disagreed with Szilard's view. Szilard and others arranged for a petition to come out of Los Alamos with 70 signatures advising the government not to go ahead with its plans to use an atomic weapon against the Japanese. Szilard was one of the main authors of the Frank Report in June of 1945. The report warned that even if the A-bomb helped save lives in this war, the atomic bomb's use could lead to a nuclear arms race and possibly a nuclear war that would take far more lives than any that might be saved by the current war. Szilard continued his efforts to bring nuclear weapons under control. But, as the documentary showed all too clearly, once the military had their hands on this new toy, they were not about to give up the temporary superiority that it gave us over the Soviet Union. But of course, as is well known, with the help of atomic spies, the USSR was able to build their own atomic bomb for basically pennies on the dollar, unleashing the arms race that is still with us to this day. In fact, there's talk now about President Obama and Congress getting together to update our nuclear weapons. Of course, if we update our weapons, wouldn't that make the Russians want to update their weapons and maybe the Chinese update some of their weapons and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I don't know about you, dear listener, but this is a lot more scary stuff than anything going on over in Iran. Since I find the subject of this man and the topic of atomic weapons so fascinating, I want to digress just a little more. Szilard was the co-holder with Enrico Fermi of the patent on the nuclear reactor. In the end, he sold his patent to the U.S. government for reimbursement of his expenses, $15,416, plus the standard $1 fee. He continued to work with Enrico Fermi and Eugene Wigner on nuclear reactor design and is credited with coining the term breeder reactor. Because most of the bombs we had, and most of the bombs that most people have, evidently use plutonium because you can make plutonium from the non-fissionable isotope of uranium. If you take 100 pounds of uranium, 99.3 pounds are U-238, which you can't use to make a bomb with. Bombard it with neutrons, however, and you can create plutonium, which you can also make a bomb out of, as they found out in Nagasaki. But evidently, sometime in the 1950s, Szilard was giving a radio interview, and he happened to mention another type of bomb they could make that could destroy the world. And dear listener, if you decide that you're going to destroy the world, and we hope you don't, you can as Leo Szilard pointed out in a radio interview back in 1950, salt your nuclear weapon with cobalt. If you did this, the cobalt would become radioactive and itself then decay and produce gamma rays, making the problem of radioactive contamination much, much, much worse. Notes the Wikipedia entry on this bomb. Szilard suggested that an arsenal of cobalt bombs would be capable of destroying all human life on Earth, while his intent was not to propose such a weapon be built, but to show that nuclear weapon technology would soon reach a point where it could end human life on Earth. A doomsday device. And if the phrase doomsday device calls to mind the apocalyptic satire Dr. Strangelove, well, you'd be on the right track. In that amazing movie, the Soviet Union had established a secret nuclear deterrent 
comprising 50 buried cobalt bombs, more specifically the Cobalt Thorium G Doomsday Machine. I always thought that was something they made up. Well, not exactly. Back in 1957, the British tested an atomic bomb using cobalt pellets as a radiochemical tracer for estimating the yield of the explosion. This was reportedly considered a failure, and the experiment was allegedly not repeated. So far as is publicly known, no cobalt bombs have ever been built. And while I know this is a mighty digression to start the show with, we have to circle back to Hiroshima. And by the way, if you've never read John Hersey's Hiroshima, I suggest that you do so, dear listener. On August 31st, in 1946, the New Yorker magazine devoted its entire issue to Hersey's brilliant 30,000-word account of what actually took place in the city when the bomb exploded. I'm tempted to read an excerpt from this epic work, but I don't think we have enough time. And I'm going to quote again from The First Casualty by Philip Knightley regarding his discussion of the news blackout that had taken place after the bombing. By the way, Knightley's opinion as to what really defeated Japan was the success of the United States Navy in denying the Japanese their vital oil supplies. He quotes some interesting statistics. In 1942, Japan got 40% of its oil. The next year, only 15%. In 1944, 5%. In 1945, it got none. And of course, at Yalta, the Russians cut a deal with the Allies, Roosevelt and Churchill, to join the war against Japan three months later. Stalin honored this agreement, meaning that Japan's goose was cooked. Leo Szilard and others wanted a demonstration of the power of the bomb to be shown to the Japanese rather than actually testing it on a city filled with human beings. This, of course, was rejected. Of course, once you dropped a bomb on a city, there was no chance of keeping the atomic secret. 16 hours after the event, President Truman announced the dropping of the bomb and specified the nature of the weapon, saying, quote, it is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who have brought war to the Far East. Knightley notes that Bin Nakamura, a reporter with the Dome Agency's Hiroshima branch, survived the blast, gathered as much information as he could, and got out the first eyewitness account of what had occurred. He even included a little speculation as to what could have caused such devastation. Fantastic though it must have seemed to him at the time, Nakamura wrote, it might have been an atomic bomb. On September 3rd, Wilfred Burchett of the London Daily Express arrived in Hiroshima. His story, with some of the more horrifying details cut out, appeared in the Daily Express on September 5th, a historic exclusive. To quote from it, In Hiroshima, 30 days after the first atom bomb destroyed the city and shook the world, people are still dying, mysteriously and horribly. People who were uninjured in the cataclysm. From an unknown something, which I can only describe as the atomic plague. Noted nightly, Burchett's report was the first to describe radiation sickness. The American authorities reacted quickly. Army press relations called a conference in Tokyo to refute Burchett's accounts. There was no such thing as radiation sickness, the spokesman said. Burchett arrived back in Tokyo to walk into a conference in time to hear the spokesman accuse him of falling victim to Japanese propaganda. Hiroshima was put out of bounds to all correspondence. Burchett was served with an expulsion order. And in the United States, Major General Leslie Groves, head of the Manhattan Project, declared flatly, this talk about radioactivity is so much nonsense. 
And in fact, dear listener, I again refer you back to that special, The Bomb, to review the great problem they had in the U.S. military regarding radiation sickness and radiation contamination and the use of atomic weapons. This made it very in- inconvenient to use these devices since it would kill the people you then send in to occupy the cities afterwards. This was dealt with by denial. When they later decided to show the world what atomic weapons could do by blowing up a bunch of ships and at Bikini Atoll out in the Pacific, the military knuckleheads in charge of this poo-pooed the idea that there would be contamination. They were even planning to put people on board the ships that survived the explosion and then sail them away to demonstrate how safe this all was. Let's just say that didn't work out when the Geiger counters were exploding all over the place. I think if we devoted the rest of this show and the next 10 shows to talking about nuclear follies, we probably would not even come close to exhausting that subject. But I think we need to bring this to a close at this point. 70 years ago today, Hiroshima fell victim to an atomic weapon, as would Nagasaki three days later. Luckily for all of us, there has been no use of an atomic bomb or, God forbid, a thermonuclear hydrogen bomb since then. Let's hope that we can all live out our natural lives without that changing. Probably be better if we just paused, took a break, and started the top of the show in the second segment. So I have some very, uh, very choice bumper music selected. Yeah, I'm choosing to go out with Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit for a reason. A lively discussion took place last week among the people who produce programs here at KDVS over the appropriateness of ever using a song like this one. Now, it is undeniably true that here at KDVS, we have a mandate to reach out to you, dear listener, and provide you with the kind of things that you will not get on commercial radio. This is a laudable goal. But I discovered, in dealing with the faction that takes the position that we should never, ever play this song, that there is a a belief among certain DJs that they would rather play something that's awful than play something that's been commercially popular. Now, we probably shouldn't even get involved in this fight because all we do is play a little bumper music, dear listener. We never even play tunes all the way through, so maybe we should just shut up. But alas, being who I am, and that includes being sometimes a KDVS listener myself, I would propose that we play a wide variety of tunes here on the station. Yes, play a lot of garage bands. Play a lot of stuff that no one's going to hear anyplace else. But above all else, always try and play something that's good and listenable. In fact, we're going to need two pieces of bumper music for the next two segments, so we'll see if we can't demonstrate what we think we mean by this. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Stick around. We plan to start the show at the top of the next segment.